You are listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 55. the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we are talking with Chloe Carruthers-Liska, along with her father, Andrew Carruthers-Liska. Chloe and Andrew work together on our newest Eyes on Conservation film, Stewards of the Ocean. Stewards of the Ocean is about Chloe's experience working on the Marine Mammal Center's youth crew. As some of you are aware, we have developed a strong partnership with the Marine Mammal Center over the past several years and have produced a few videos about their important work. This film, however, shows a different side of marine mammal rehabilitation and research. The youth crew is an amazing opportunity for students to become actively involved in marine mammal rehabilitation and research, and Chloe takes us through her learning process while working with these amazing animals. Chloe also talks about the challenges faced in shooting the documentary, Stewards of the Ocean, and what it was like collaborating on this project with her father. Andrew shares his thoughts on the filmmaking process as well and talks about what it was like to work on such a creative project with his young daughter. Now, before we jump into this exciting interview, however, we are first going to hear from someone who's been conducting research on this podcast series itself. Brooke Townsend reached out to me a few months back with an interest in using the Eyes on Conservation podcast to answer some questions about what type of content is most appealing to conservation-oriented podcast listeners. I shared all of our podcast data with Brooke, and she's going to join us now to share what she has learned. All right, I'm here with Brooke Townsend, who has recently completed a really interesting research paper in which she actually used some of the data from uh, our Eyes on Conservation podcast series here. So I thought that I would have her on the show to kind of give us uh, a little bit of an explanation about the research that she's been doing and um, what she has learned about um, our podcast series. How are you doing, Brooke? Hi, I'm well. How are you? Good. So maybe you can start off by just telling us a little bit about the um, the graduate program that, that you're in right now that led you to this project? Sure. So I am actually currently applying to be in the graduate program called the Global Field Program with Miami University, and it's run by a program called Project Dragonfly. And it's mostly an inquiry-based education program. The interesting thing for me and the reason that I was really interested in getting into the program is because it has a field component, and so every semester takes us to a different field site where we do research and things like that. Also, what's really interesting is every semester we have to do it, it's called an inquiry action project, which kind of led me to your podcast, and my inquiry action project was whether or not positive or negative podcasts are more popular with conservation-minded listeners which is kind of a mouthful. But um, yeah, I, I guess that's kind of how I came to find your podcast. And I was really interested in knowing how the conservation message is received, whether positive or negative, and if it can actually cause people to change their behavior. Did you have an interest in sort of podcasting coming into this? Is that what sort of led you to focus in on this topic for your research paper? 
Yeah, I wanted to do like a, a pretty granular topic because I felt like, you know, just saying um, the broad theme of conservation through all media types would just be too, too much. So I decided, you know, that the easiest thing for me, because I have a radio background, is looking into podcasting because you don't really see conservation messaging on traditional radio. And podcasting is definitely, you know, kind of like an emerging medium that's really interesting, I think, and exciting because it's kind of taking like the old days of radio where, you know, mom and pop could have a show if they built an antenna or whatever, which we don't see anymore. You know, you can bring that into the present day. So anyone can have a radio broadcast or a podcast and tell a story to specific listeners. So I thought that that would be a really interesting thing to study because we're kind of on the cusp of podcasting blowing up. You know, I mean, so many people have podcasts now. It's just a much more popular thing than it used to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I I really love that analogy to, you know, sort of old school radio shows and this concept of, you know, sort of like your mom and pop, like run radio station and how this sort of new era of podcasting is kind of um, a revival of that. So basically you were look, you were trying to figure out if, you know, a, a, a sort of a positive message versus a more negative message in this realm of conservation-oriented podcasts that we produce here at Eyes on Conservation, if, like, one of those had more of an appeal to the folks that are listening to our show, right? Um, yeah. So I guess the next logical question is, like, what did you find out? So the results of the research that I did showed that most people were more interested in positive messaging. So... The only thing that we are really able to measure with podcasting is whether or not someone clicks a link. As you know, you can't measure whether or not they download the whole file or whether or not they actually... Well, what you can measure is if they download the file. You can't measure if they listen to the whole podcast. There's no measurement tool for that. So really, the only thing we can measure is, did you download that podcast? So that's where we started. You provided that information to me. So... What I did was I used a language inquiry or language word inquiry count software program, which is really boring. And I put all of the descriptions of the podcasts in there, and it spit out whether they were positive or negative in theme. So what I found was more people downloaded the positive-themed podcasts than the negative-themed podcasts, which is kind of expected. I think you know a lot of people are more interested in positive conservation messaging than negative conservation messaging, especially a more conservation-minded listener. So a listener who is more conservation-minded, I think it does make sense that they would be more interested in positive messaging. I definitely strive, you know, as a filmmaker, but also as a podcast host, to to, to find those positive conservation stories, to to find conservation success stories. So that's neat for me here. Um. (laughs) The thing that I found was there's something, I guess, called the worry effect, And people tend to, when talking about um, climate change and that sort of thing, when they feel more worried about something, then they're more apt to act on it. So that was one thing I found. And there were a lot of different things, like proximity and distance matters. So if you're able to bring a message to someone and make them feel like the impact of it is close to them, then they're more apt to change, which makes sense. I mean... We wouldn't really change our behavior if we didn't expect some positive results from it. 
So those are just some of the kind of things. And I think that worry is not necessarily a positive or a negative emotion. It's just kind of, you know, something that we, I mean, I guess it, it would depends on, you know, where you are on the spectrum of how much you worry. But, um, you know, those are just some interesting things that I found. Fear, fear was another thing. Like people, when they're, I, my initial thought was that if people were afraid, like if you used negative words, then people would be more inclined to act because they would think that maybe like, you know, that little old part of our brain that is functioning on a different level would be like, oh, there's a negative word. Maybe I need to take action to stop that negative thing from happening. Maybe I need to click on this link and listen to it because it's like catastrophe coming your way. Maybe I need to listen to that. But that wasn't what I found. I didn't find that more negative words caused people to listen to the podcasts more. So my actual null hypothesis was not what did i i rejected my null hypothesis i think (laughs) well right so you were expecting to see that um that the negative language in the descriptions of the podcast would lead to higher download rates but you actually found the opposite of that right yes that's exactly correct gotcha cool well Definitely very interesting results. And, you know, I'm super grateful to you for, you know, doing this research and, you know, sharing the results with me because this is helpful information, you know, to me as I continue moving forward with with the show. So tell us about your future goals. Uh, You know, what's next as you move forward with your graduate program and beyond? I guess my future goals are really I would like to, you know, be like a environmental journalist. Like I'd like to go places and kind of tell the story of conservation. I feel like it's a really important story to tell right now. And, um, you know, it's unfortunately we're in the middle of a kind of crisis. So, you know, I feel like it's like the most important story to be telling right now. So I would like to be involved in that in the future. Well, I I think the way you describe that is very apt, right? I mean, the fact that we, we are in a crisis, you know, and it's, it's not an environmental specific crisis. It's a global crisis. And there's many facets to that. And, you know, we're looking at rapidly changing climate all across the globe. And we're looking at mass, uh, the potential for mass species extinctions. A lot of folks saying that we've already entered our sixth mass extinction event. Right. So, uh, you know, it is it's it's it is really critically important that we be talking about these issues um, and trying to you know, help uh, inspire other people to get involved and to um, want to make a difference. So, yeah, fantastic to hear. Um, thanks a lot for coming on the show and sharing all this good information for us. And re- really neat to, uh, to to see what you're able to do with uh, the data for our podcast. So thanks a lot for sharing that with us. Awesome. Thank you. All right. That was graduate student Brooke Townsend sharing some interesting revelations about how listeners consume conservation-themed content garnered from this very podcast series. Now we're going to jump into our interview with Chloe and Andrew Carruthers-Liska. I am here with Andrew and Chloe Carruthers-Liska, and we're here to talk about a really interesting experience that, Chloe, you were able to have uh, as uh, working as a Mm -hmm. volunteer for the Marine Mammal Center. Um, so I'm going to start off, Chloe, just by asking you how you first became interested in wildlife or marine mammals. Well, I'd say I was always interested in wildlife and marine mammals just because my family and through my childhood experiences, I've kind of been outdoors and been exposed to wildlife and had a lot of 
wilderness experiences, camping and backpacking. And I'd say one of the really formative experiences that I had in the wilderness was I think when I was 11, my family and I went on a canoe trip in Algonquin Provincial Park in Canada. And that was a week long, like totally out in the wilderness. So that was really cool to go and get to experience nature like in depth in that way. And I think the kind of wilderness experiences that I had when I was a child sort of inspired me from an early age to be interested in wildlife and to be interested in marine mammals. Very neat. So where did the idea come from to join the Marine Mammal Center's youth crew? Well, I was kind of looking for ways that I could get involved with um, my ecological community and, you know, kind of being a steward and helping the environment in that way. And I was just kind of looking for options. And then my science teacher, actually Gillian Ashenfelter, she had been a volunteer at the Marine Mammal Center. So she kind of told me about that. And then I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And I did some research and I found out about the youth crew as a way I could get involved. And I applied and that's how I started working there. Andrew, I'm curious to hear from you. You're Chloe's father. Um, I mean, what did you think about this this idea? Well, I, I've always tried to support anything that you know my children are interested in, especially when it comes to being connected with um, the place you live and your home region. So I was just thrilled. And Chloe and Lauren, both of my daughters, have always been interested in the outdoors, and while not just uh, you know in just being out in a beautiful place, but in understanding how it operates as a natural system. And they just both had that innate curiosity. So I was thrilled when Chloe decided that she wanted to apply for this internship. Chloe, when I asked you, um, you know, where this interest in wildlife and marine mammals came from, I mean, you had a specific sort of memory of a family trip that you guys took yeah. um, that sort of sparked that. I mean, Andrew, is there a moment when maybe you realized that, you know, uh, sort of the importance that being in the outdoors and sort of this understanding of you know, ecology and the natural world was really important to, to well, Chloe? Well, in particular, as a as a little child, she was always intrigued and fascinated with the outside. She would always be down on the ground. She wasn't one of these kids who was, uh, you know, she always felt connected outdoors. She wasn't afraid of the outdoors. She would be crawling around, looking at bugs, sniffing things. <laughs> I remember one time, you know, she actually got, she sniffed this flower and got stuck up into her sinus and <laughs> He ended up ended up in this crazy late night escapade. Uh, to you know, she was being held down, and forceps were trying to get up into her sinus. And then it was several years later that she just had this coughing fit, and boom, this little kind of ossified, mummified little bit of a flower bud shot out of her nose. So <laughs> maybe that maybe that got in there, and you know, did something to her spirit. I don't know. <laughs> right, I like that. You, me- you remember that, Chloe? Yeah, I remember. <laughs> so, Chloe, uh, tell me about um, what those first few days that you spent working on the youth crew were like. Um, well, I was just trying to get familiar with the whole process of crew and working and rehabilitating the mammals. So, basically, for the first couple of days of the crew, I was just kind of working in the fish kitchen, like preparing the feeds. And I mean, I think after like three or four weeks, I started to get to go out in the pens and I started working with elephant seals first. So I started cleaning their pens and weighing them. And then now as there were more species coming in 
and uh, I was getting more experience. I got to work with some of the other animals. So now I get to, there's a lot of fur seals right now at the center. So one of the things that I'm doing now at the center is tubing them and cleaning pens still, obviously, because that's something that's always needs to be done. But I'd say the process of working at the Marine Mammal Center, you start with sort of simple things and then you just kind of build up into more complex things as you become more familiar with the environment and as your crew supervisor kind of learns to trust you more and also learns how you operate and you become, you know, more familiar with animals and how they behave. So what was it like to see these animals up so close? I mean, at first I thought it was really cool because these were animals that I'd only really seen from a distance and seen out in the wild. And it was a really unique, you know, opportunity to get to go and get to be so close to these animals. But, I mean, after a while I kind of got frustrated with them because, you know, they're very disobedient and they don't like to do what you want them to do. And, you know, they're not, that's not what they're supposed to do. They're wild animals. They're not supposed to be tame. They're not supposed to conform to human needs. So I still say they never really lost that charm, though. There's something, like, really cool and inspiring about seeing an animal and seeing something out of your control that, you know, you can't tame and... I don't know. That for me is one of the most exciting things about working at the center is I'm working with something that's kind of unfamiliar still. I mean, even after I've been working at the center for six months, almost a year now, I still like don't know how the animals are going to behave. And there's always something new to learn. Very cool. So yeah, there. I, I would imagine that there's a certain sense of responsibility um, towards these animals. You yeah. know, you're sort of their caretaker in a sense, right? Definitely. I mean, I'd say that a lot of what I've gotten out of my work at the Marine Mammal Center is responsibility, both in the larger sense of you have to be responsible for your environment so that these animals are going to have a place to live and a place to persist and their habitat is maintained, and also a sense of responsibility in that you have to know what you're doing. You have to be cautious when you're around these animals to make sure nobody gets bitten. You have to make sure that all the animals are getting the right food and the right medications that they need in order to get better. So I'd say that, yeah, responsibility is definitely a big part of what I've gotten out of my experience at the Mammal Center. Well, if if I could break in, Chloe, I have a question. And, you know, I wasn't part of this and it wasn't in your film, but what was it like witnessing a necropsy? Because there is a lot of mortality with these creatures and, and that must be pretty sobering. Yeah, it was it was kind of sobering. It was also very fascinating, though, just to see the animal kind of dismantle and see how all those bits and parts like fit together and how it kind of functioned and operated. But I definitely would say it was sad. A lot of the kids, um, the other youth crew volunteers who were with me during the necropsy, kind of got grossed out and kind of felt sick or whatever. But I don't know. I thought it was kind of cool, but also definitely, yeah, a little bit sad to see that. Yeah, no, it's true. Like some of these animals don't make it like and that's partially our fault. So, I mean, I'm wondering on the other end, you know, what what does it feel like um, to see an animal that you have cared for released back into the wild? I'd say it's a really joyful and really inspiring experience when you see them like on the beach and just going out 
and you know you'll probably never see them again, and that's like a good thing. So it's like you're saying goodbye to someone who you've loved and who you care for, but you know that they're like moving on to a better place. Not in the, the sense of like dying or whatever, but like in the sense that they're going back to where they belong. So, I mean, it's a very positive and a very inspiring experience to see them go from not being able to survive and being really debilitated to becoming healthy and strong and being able to move back into the place where they belong in their natural environment. So in, in addition to the, the actual work that you're doing as a part of the youth crew um, for the Marine Mammal Center um, and everything that you've been talking about thus far, I mean, you also, over these past few months, have been working to shoot the footage for and produce a short film about your experience on the youth crew. Um, I mean, maybe you can just start off by telling us where this idea, the idea for this film came from. Uh, well, Sean kind of talked to me about it. He said that the Marine Mammal Center didn't really have any sort of fun or entertaining videos that would appeal to youth. Also, they didn't really have any videos that came from the youth perspective. So he was wondering if I, with having some experience in film through my high school would be interested in kind of collaborating and working with him to produce that for the center. And that's kind of where the project idea came from. Gotcha. And I'll just, you know, so folks know, um, Sean, you're talking about Sean Bogle, who's one of our Eisen yeah. conservation producers, um, who's done a lot of work with the Marine Mammal Center uh, himself. Um, I mean, was it difficult to balance uh, working on this film project while also fulfilling your tasks as a member of the youth group? A little bit, yeah. Like, you kind of, when you go into the pens and when you work and you have to be focused, but one kind of piece of technology that made that easier was I used a GoPro for a lot of the footage so I had the camera like mounted on my head so I could be working in the pens and still shooting footage so that was good gotcha um Andrew I'm wondering you know sort of what role you played um in this film you know how were you sort of helping out with this process we we've been to that wild and scenic film fest which is a wonderful um collection of you know ecological or social justice issues or extreme outdoor um, wilderness tripping. You know, it's a wonderful film festival if you ever have a chance to go and see it. But So we had been to that a number of times, and that's where we actually met Sean, and it was just ironic that he we started talking to him. We struck up a conversation because we had seen the film Bluebird Man that was screening there, which is another amazing film about um, the citizen scientist, uh, what is his name, Al Larson? Yep. Uh, yep. In Idaho, who, you know, spent a lot of his retirement or he still is working at it in his 90s now, um, you know, nurturing bluebirds, the mountain bluebird. Anyway, so I had always been interested in still photography and was all, uh, just extremely inspired by going to the Wild and Scenic that both of my kids and my wife, we've attended. This is probably seven times we've been there. And so Chloe had had this experience. She had taken a documentary film um, production class at her high school that – um, she was a little di disappointed with it. Didn't uh, just didn't really seem as in depth and serious. So my involvement in this was sort of to try to encourage her and be a facilitator. And then when these connections were made, I was just there, sort of as as a, a supporter for her. And I, I actually did. I got in and I shot some of the f footage um, for like the scene at the opening of the film in San Simeon, where it's right on the beach. Uh, 
at Piedras Blancas, which is down by San Simeon on the California Central Coast. That's where the elephant seal colony images came from. It sounds like this was, you know, at least in part, you know, learning experience for both of you, maybe. I mean, were you guys uh, together when you were on the beach shooting that um, elephant seal footage? Well, we were together on that particular uh, day, but just going through, because I had no experience really with um, digital, with capturing video with a DSLR. So those are things that Chloe and I, Chloe had a D5300, a Nikon that she used for some of it, along with a GoPro. So yeah, I had, we both sort of picked up on those skills as we went. And we did do a lot of uh, shoots together also like we shot the interviews with Deidre who is a, and Lauren who are both work at the Marine Mammal Center we shot those interviews together and then we both the shot the release together um is that it I think that's the yeah, scene that, we shot together I think that covers what we shot together so you you shot obviously your times at the when I wasn't obviously at the yeah at the, the GoPro and so forth on the crew and also um yeah, I think that's when I was working on the crew that was shot by me um, on the GoPro and also by Sean. From my own personal perspective, you know, I find that I always learn interesting things about the folks I'm working with. You know, when I'm working with people on a video crew, um, you know, obviously you guys <laughs> knew each other pretty well going into this uh, beforehand. But I'm wondering if, you know, you guys sort of uh, what what that experience working together was like or did you sort of uh, learn anything new about each other? You know, as as the parent of a child, it's great to see your child evolve in during that period of adolescence where as they're younger, they're sort of following your lead. And then as they grow into adolescence, they're and they're becoming their own person and they're starting to decide their own pathway through life. It's just it's it's inspiring to see what Chloe has done. So, Chloe, how would you say this overall experience has shaped your attitude towards wildlife and conservation efforts? Um, I think it's definitely made me more knowledgeable and more enthusiastic to pursue wildlife conservation because this experience has been something I really enjoyed and has helped teach me a lot. So before I didn't really know all that much about it and didn't really have any firsthand experience doing it. But now that I do have it, it's definitely kind of continued to kindle my interest in it and made me realize that it's something that I want to continue to pursue and continue to work on. And it's that something that's positive. And I mean, although maybe may, sometimes it's not making a huge difference, it's still small steps that we can take towards achieving a larger goal. And we can't really achieve that larger goal if we don't make any effort and we don't take the little steps that might not seem significant now, but will probably be significant later. I mean, do you have any specific ideas about what you maybe want to do when, you know, you get older and continue your studies? And what impacts did this experience have on that? Well, just to interject a thought, something I think is that's really important about conservation is kind of raising awareness and making people understand the importance of the work you're doing and the importance of the animals and of preserving an environment and actually having people go out and enjoy and see the environment and make it seem like something that they want to um, preserve. So I'd say that's definitely a realization that's come out of uh, the Marine Mammal Center because, you know, I hadn't really had a whole lot of experiences um, 
or as much as frequently as I do now with marine mammals. But now that I've gotten to go and work with them and on a consistent basis, I see how amazing and incredible and really unique they are and that there's something that's really worth keeping around. So I'd say that's one thing that I've gotten out of this. And then moving forward uh, in the pursuit of my studies, I'd say that I probably, I don't really know exactly what I want to do, but I want to study some sort of science in college and I'm thinking of pursuing, I don't know, it changes very frequently depending on how I'm feeling or what's kind of interesting me at, at a particular moment. But right now, one of the things that I'm really interested in is like biomimetics, which is a type of engineering that takes naturally, um, natural systems and designs from nature and tries to use them to make, you know, more sustainable man-made products. Like one interesting example of biomimetics is there's, um, some, it's a pattern from that occurs on a lizard in a desert that they're trying to harness and they're trying to duplicate to use to kind of harvest water, like dew and like moisture in the air. So that's another example. One example of biomedics that I'm kind of interested in right now. Do you think that you guys will ever make another film together? I, I think so. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Probably. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think we're going to have to make a goofy that, film for your graduation. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot out of this process and um, working uh, on this film and, you know, uh, learning how to be more competent with filmmaking and with all the technology and equipment that's involved. And I think it's something that I'd want to do again, so probably. Uh, one thing that I think I got out of it, Matthew, is just even though this is a very short little film, um, the way it can reach, th this idea of having it reach out to other youth. Uh, Chloe might not have mentioned this, but her high school actually has a, a couple sister schools, and she's been taking in a marine sciences um, course this past semester, and then been going to uh, do, um, is it sand crab censusing, Chloe, or what, uh, what are you doing? I can talk more <clears throat> about that. So. I'm in a marine ecology course right now at my high school, and we've been going and working with this elementary school in San Francisco called Uloa Elementary, and we've taught them some lessons about the sandy beach environment and the ecosystem surrounding that, and we've also gone out to Ocean Beach in San Francisco to do some data collection uh, on the sand crab population out there. So I'm definitely considering that elementary school as an avenue where I can showcase my film and kind of inspire the kids there to maybe work at the Marine Mammal Center while they're older or just show them why they should care about marine mammals and about the ocean so that when they go on to be adults, they'll you know, make responsible choices and act responsibly and want to preserve uh, the ocean. One of the most important things that I think you can learn as you go through the process of producing a film like this about wildlife or about conservation topic or regardless of what it's about um, is that you learn how to tell a story. Right. Um, and you right. learn how to sort of convey to pick out the pieces of information that are most important and to convey that information in a way that's compelling and to tell a story through the process of conveying that information so that, you know, the folks who you're talking to 
um, it's it's engaging to them, right? And they retain mm-hmm. that information. Um, yeah. And that's you know I think that that knowledge and that understanding of that process, that storytelling process, is relevant regardless of whether or not you're going to go on to make another film or not. And I, I think that's part of the editing as well that you have to thank Joey for because he's the one who you know helped to take that footage and mold it into the story. And it was interesting to us to you know, watch through the various cuts of the editing and see how it evolved. But the piece that you always was always there at the beginning was you saw this sort of what we would think of as this pristine looking natural environment, which is the Piedras Blancas rookery. And if you know anything about that, you realize that elephant seals, the northern elephant seal was nearly extinct. And that's one of the great comeback stories. And then to come for a full circle to the end of the film where we just filmed the little release of the the sea lions just over on the Marin Headlands. It's just a neat story and how then Chloe's experience as an, as a intern is sandwiched in between that. Just to remind everybody, um, the film is called stewards of the ocean. Um, it's up on the homepage, uh, our wildlands homepage right now. So if you go to wildlandsinc.org, you can check out that film. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'd like to thank both of you, Andrew and Chloe. Thanks a lot for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts and feelings about what sounds like a really interesting, really amazing learning experience for you, Chloe. Um, but for both of you, I think, um, you know, it's always wonderful to hear about families that are learning about the natural world together. So thanks to you both. Thank you very much. And thank you guys for supporting Chloe in this project. All right. That was our interview with Eyes on Conservation filmmakers, Chloe and Andrew Carruthers-Liska. This was the first time that we've had a father-daughter filmmaking team on the show, and it was really interesting to hear about how these two work together on this project. I particularly liked Andrew's comment about how he is now following Chloe's lead, letting her be his guide into this world of filmmaking, um, an obvious role reversal from when Chloe was younger. This strikes me as a critical component of parenting, um, embracing the new things that your kids are able to teach you. You can watch Chloe and Andrew's film, Stewards of the Ocean, on the Wild Lens homepage or by checking out the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC55. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org slash EOC55. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. (laughs) 